another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. One man's view of the changing world in the changing economic times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 89, folks. We're about to hit 90 tomorrow, uh, which means we're very close to hitting our 100th episode, which is a big milestone for us. Uh, and today is Monday, November 10th, 2008, and uh, I have a few things to talk about before I get into the uh, meat of today's show, which is going to be organic gardening, just a little bit on organic gardening as a whole, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on what's called companion planting today, because a lot of the problems that make people think, well, I, I can't be an organic gardener uh, can be remedied through simple things like companion planting. It's a huge part of how to make organic gardening work. Before that, though, I do have to cover a couple of things. One was last week, you probably got an email if you're on my distribution list. If you're not, you need to be on the distribution list because it'll keep you informed. And, uh, you know, I know some of you guys are subscribed on iTunes, but I'll get to that in a second why it's not always the most reliable thing in the world either. Uh, my distribution list is pretty good about making sure that you know when new shows are out or when there's anything I need to communicate to my audience. Uh, I try to keep it always to one email a day. Uh, Occasionally if there's a special announcement there may be two. It's only during the week. I don't send out uh, emails on weekends. I never try to sell you anything by email. It's not a spam list. I sure as hell am not going to share your name or information with anybody else and uh, you can even set up rules to put all my emails into one folder so you only read them when you want to uh, because they always have the survival podcast somewhere in the subject line. So if you want to use your email programs rules based on subject, you can even organize that way. Uh, So I do suggest you get on it. But those who are, got an email early Thursday morning, said due to a minor emergency that I would not be able to uh, do a show on Thursday. I was able to do a show that Friday. The show notes are still brief, just because I haven't gotten around to kind of tuning them up. Um... And uh, we had a, just a, a little medical thing, and I had to spend some time with my wife at the hospital. And uh, she's fine, and she'll do just fine. And if you want to think about her, uh, send her thoughts, prayers, good stuff like that, you can go ahead and do so. Uh, her name's Dorothy. For those of you who maybe haven't heard me mention her before, but don't worry, we're not uh, we're not making uh, prearrangements for funerals or anything like that. She's going to be here for a long time with me, which makes me a very happy man. Everything's good to go there, uh, so let's not overreact or anything. Um, because I've gotten, sometimes i said, like, something's going on, and I get like 50 emails from folks going, oh, everything's okay, everything's okay. Uh, but th- that is what happened. So then Friday, I did a show uh, from the house, uh, early, early in the morning before I took her in for some testing that I had to stay with her for. And uh, I did that on a program called Audacity, and the, the feedback has been that the audio quality of that was amazing. And folks, I wish I could continue to broadcast with that kind of audio quality, but I just can't. That's why I do this show if this is your first show, I do this show on a commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. And, uh, you know, maybe one day that will change. But for now, you'll have to deal with a little bit of the side background noise and stuff like that. I am looking into some noise filtering technology that was pointed out to me uh, for Sony Vegas, which is my preferred editor. We'll see if that can help clean things up a little bit. Uh, but, you know, hang with me with the noise, folks, because it's part of what makes this cool and different. I mean, how many people could actually do a show like this on the very subject matter that we cover, driving 65? 
five miles an hour down the highway on a 50-mile commute. All right? So uh, that's what happened there. The other thing was I started getting emails from people. Of course, you know, I, I've determined that my site will always have problems when I am away on a vacation, away on a business trip, or dealing with some type of minor emergency, and uh, my feed was not updating. And because the feed wasn't updating, iTunes wasn't updating, and the last couple episodes weren't there. And it took me a while to figure it out and clean it up, but what had happened is I use a program called FeedBurner, uh, where I convert my feed over to their feed, and it gives me a lot of information about you guys, and it's how I track how many listeners I have through the feed and stuff like that. And uh, it's very useful. But it turns out they put a limit on how large your feed can be. And uh, we made the feed too big. And when we did, it just stopped updating. So then I resunk the feed, resync, uh, did a resync for the feed. And uh, after the resync, it crashed to the ground. And I had to go in and fiddle with the blog and wait for the updates to take over. And now on iTunes, you will only see the most recent 20 editions of the Survival Podcast. So if you're a new listener and you want the, the very beginning of the show, uh, you're going to have to download them directly. I'm going to try to expand that and see how far I can expand the feed without going over FeedBurner's limit. If there was a way to pay them, folks, to, to, to allow me to have a you know a massive giant feed, uh, I would be okay with paying them. They don't have that option. Uh, there's nothing anybody can do to help out, so it's not a bandwidth issue or something like that. It's just a component that I use in the show uh, that now has a you know an issue now. I could get off of FeedBurner altogether, but there's no way that I know of in iTunes uh, to say, hey, my feed was here, now it's here, uh, and go back to using the stock feed. If anybody knows how to make that kind of an update request to iTunes, let me know, because if I do that, I can solve the problem very easily. Otherwise, you know, just know that if you're a new listener, you're going to have to go to the, the, the show directly to download older episodes. And I'll try to push you back up to about 40 episodes I think we'll be fine with, which is quite a bit to have in a feed anyway. So those are the two uh, house cleaning items. Now let's get into today's subject. And of course, today's subject is going to be organic gardening and companion planting. And I want to start off with just kind of an overview of some concepts that go with organic gardening and I think some misconceptions that people have. Uh, You know, as we're going into this podcast, you're thinking, is this the garden show? Well, some days it is. Because to me, if you can't grow your own food, you're not much of a survivalist. There's only so much food you can store. And as long as you're relying on simple storing food, uh, then you're in a situation where if, you know, we have the shit hits the fan, as they say, uh, well, your days of buying food to store are over, and hopefully they'll fix the problem before you run out. Where if you can grow your own food, not only can you survive if the shit hits the fan, but you can supplement your diet while times are good, and you can live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. So this is definitely a survival-minded topic, but it's going to be very much a, uh, a garden show today, and, you know, yes, you know, Friday was a, a show on 22 uh, long rifle and uh, various uh, weapons that use that round. So we try to keep it varied here and exciting. But the problem with organic gardening in the minds of many people who have never actually done organic gardening is they think that organic gardening is just about what you don't do. And what I mean by that is, well, you don't use chemical fertilizers, you don't use chemical pesticides, uh, and if you don't use any kind of chemical uh, additives, then you're organic gardening. And that is true from what must remain out of organic gardening. But organic gardening is a lot more about what you do than what you don't do. 
All right, because it's easy to not apply fertilizer, frankly, and it's easy to not apply insecticides, frankly. So if it was just about not doing things, then everybody would do it. The problem is when you don't do those things, right, if you're a big commercial grower, and a lot of these commercial growers get a bad rap because, folks, they're feeding the entire world. And I want you to think right now, if you were trying to convert just one acre, and a lot of these guys are farming hundreds of acres, but if you were trying to convert one acre to productive growth, so you had an acre and a half, plot, you're going to leave a half acre for pathways and spaces, you're going to try to convert one acre of usable ground into a pure, high production organic garden in two, two seasons, how, how hard would it be to do that? It'd be, well, it would be almost impossible. Right? It takes a lot of time to get things really optimized when it comes to organic gardening. So those bigger growers have a handicap that smaller gardeners don't because you may be starting out with two or three raised beds and eventually want to have maybe five, ten raised beds, uh, something like that. Even if you, wanted, if, you, if you want to organic garden on an acre, a full acre of gardening, hey, man, there's no reason you can't do it. It's just going to take more time. Unless you have a lot of money to bring in a lot of organic material or if you're very fortunate. And what I mean by very fortunate is if you own land, let's say that's some bottom land that's been having, you know, grade A topsoil and organic matter, you know, dumped on it and layered on it for a long, long time, hundreds and hundreds of years, with nobody growing anything on it, it's rich and fertile already, well then your job is a lot easier than a lot of Americans who are sitting on a half acre, a quarter acre, a tenth of an acre in the suburbs, uh, maybe an acre out in the edges of the suburbs, where most of their lawn was done this way, it was kind of like clay or silica soil or something like that, they brought in an inch of soil and threw sod on top of it. Right? That's what they're dealing with. And if you're dealing with that kind of land, and a lot of land in America is that kind of land when farmers start working on it. In fact, it doesn't even have that inch of topsoil. It has whatever was there, this light dusting uh, that's been put down. Right through the Midwest, people think of how fertile that land is. Well, it's fertile, but if you go down a half foot, you're going to find sand. That whole place used to be a desert millions of years ago. So that's why these folks tend to use these chemical additives, uh, these chemical fertilizers, because it's quick. All right? But the, the difference and why it's important to understand it as a home gardener is organic is more productive when you can do it right, when you have the time to do it right, and when you're managing a small enough plot of land that you can get it to where you want it rather quickly, which is a season or two, to really get it going and really get it producing well. And once you do, what you realize is that, yeah, you can throw down some fertilizer, you know, in a, that comes in a bag, the pelletized looking stuff, and it'll work, and it'll give a big shot in the arm to that crop of corn, and it'll sprout up, and it'll do better. But that effect is very short term. It's like a burst. Because what happens is all that nitrogen, potassium, and, and, and whatnot is, is dropped into the soil really quickly, but it leaches out of the soil very quickly. Where if you're getting your, your nitrogen, uh, potassium, etc. from compost, all right, then it tends to stay in the soil longer because it actually becomes part of the soil. It's extracted by the plants instead of being run off. 
And as you build organic matter into the soil, it holds the moisture longer. And as you start doing things like companion planting and putting plants together in you know, ecosystems that are holistic in nature, you start to get a lot better production. And you'll quickly find that, you know, let's say a home gardener might want to grow, let's say, half a dozen tomato plants. All right, That'll produce a lot of tomatoes in a lot of areas. Now, like my grandfather, we used to grow a dozen or so tomato plants. And we had more tomatoes than we knew what to do with. Uh, but we had really rich soil. We didn't do a lot of these organic things. I've had to learn these on my own because I no longer am sitting in, you know, the Pennsylvania Dutch country with extremely fertile land uh, that just kind of does everything for you by itself with these small gardens. Uh, But let's say you had a half a dozen tomato plants. Well, odds are you could have three or four that were producing optimally, and you'll get a higher production yield than you would from six to eight. Because you're going to get more tomatoes per plant, they're going to produce longer, they're going to stay around longer. So you can give up some of your plantings and bring in other companion plants into those beds instead of having like, okay, this is my bed of peas, this is my bed of beans, this is my bed of corn, this is my bed of tomatoes, and this is my bed of peppers. You start intermixing plants with some companion planting rules and some some good matches that I'm going to talk about here in a second, and you continue to put that organic stuff into the soil. You compost, maybe you do some worm composting. Uh, Another great thing that you should be doing, especially around this time of year in the south, and you should have already done it in other parts of the country, is planting what's called green manures. And these are, you know, could be just some buckwheat or field peas or or, or some other type of bean. And then there's a lot of mixes that have stuff, and, and big farms do this. And what what happens is these legume mixes put a huge amount of nitrogen in the soil, but you let them grow till you know right before they're about ready to start producing pods, and then you till them into the soil and let them rot into the soil, and that it's called green manure when you do that. And when you do that, you put huge amounts of nutrients and everything in the soil. It's completely organic, and uh, it's something you want to do kind of in the winter so that the bed is ready to plant in the in the spring. You don't really want to turn that green crop over and start putting plants in it right away. You want to give it at minimum a month, and several months is better for that stuff to get uh, it's broken down by the various critters that live in the soil and just through natural decay process. But if you take your beds, and maybe every other year, each you know, skip your beds and use some of your beds for gardening through the winter, and do that type of, uh, of a, a maneuver. Plant. And if you don't want to plant beans, you can plant clover. There's all types of things you can do this with uh, that will really improve your soil quality. And over the years, you'll start to build that soil up. Uh, so, again, I just want you to understand that organic gardening is not just about having food that's safer to eat. Because if you tell me that you grew your corn and you threw down some, you know, basic fertilizer, you didn't spray it with some kind of chemicals, it's not genetically modified, it's just a, a good old-fashioned sweet corn hybrid that you planted in the ground, and yes, you, you were, you know, evil and you used some fertilizer, I'm not going to hesitate to eat it. I'm happy to eat it. But if you build a good organic system, and organic gardening is not about what you do today, it's about what you continuously do over time, you'll produce more and better corn with less effort. So organic gardening is the best thing you can do for yourself as a gardener, not just the best thing that you can do for the people that are eating the food at the end of the day. And if you think about it as a survivalist, just like you can only store food for so long, you can only store and buy chemical fertilizers for so long chemical insecticides for so long, at some point, if we have a major disruption to the supply chain, you're going to have to rely on what people relied on 150 years ago. And the truth is, about 150 years ago, all farmers 
or organic gardeners. We weren't extracting nitrogen from, from fossil fuels to make fertilizer. That's what people don't realize. When you, you look at a, most of these chemical-based granular fertilizers, the main way that they're produced is by using natural gas. So when we say corn's a biofuel, well, we're using a fossil fuel to make the fertilizer, which is inefficient, which runs off in large quantities into the water system, that's killing the uh, the or ocean life down in the Gulf of Mexico at the Mississippi River Delta, and the dead zone's growing every year down there in the summertime. The corn is not growing as efficiently as it could if it were grown organically. Then it's being converted into biofuel, which is a loss, all right? And we're destroying our planet and our food supply at the same time, yippee. That's why I'm against biofuels in the form of corn-based ethanol. There are other ways to do it. We'll do a show on that someday. Uh, there's a great book out called Alcohol is a Gas you can look into. Anyway, let's go into some of these companion planning ideas and what they are and how they work holistically together. And we'll talk about some things that you don't do. And then we'll talk about four herbs that you can kind of plant just about anywhere that are always a good idea for creating good habitat for beneficial insects and creating negative habitat for harmful insects. All right, so let's start out with one of the first ones. Cabbage and dill are, are great together. Now, if you think, well, I don't grow cabbage, well, do you grow broccoli or cauliflower or uh, Brussels sprouts uh, or broccoli rob or anything like that? They're all members of the cabbage family. So these rules go for all members of the cabbage family with dill. And what happens is that most of your cabbages are pretty robust plants once they're mature. And dill starts to kind of fall over. So the dill will kind of fall over on your cabbage plants, your broccoli plants, and it'll kind of keep them propped up so they'll do better. At the same time, the dill will attract a lot of little beneficial insects. Chief among them are tiny little beneficial wasps. Now, don't worry. These aren't these big, giant paper wasps that you have to really worry about. These are little bitty wasps that tend not to bother people unless you, you know, grab them in your hand and shake them up or something. Uh, and those little wasps are just nightmares for those little green caterpillars uh, that like to get on your broccoli and your cabbage and eat the heck out of it. Uh, so basically, what you're doing in is you're you're planting you're planting a, a plant in the form of dill that will bring in sentinels that will act like soldiers and destroy the invaders that come after your broccoli. Now, doesn't that sound like a better idea than spraying it with something that's poisonous that you hope you wash off good enough, knowing it goes into the soil, becomes part of the uptake system, and some of that pesticide has to end up in the plant? That's just one. Here's another great one, and this is one of the oldest companion plantings known to man. Uh, the Indians did it, and they added squash to the mix, and that's corn and beans together. Uh, corn is extremely, extremely demanding of nitrogen. Alright? So, the problem with that is that it extracts nitrogen faster than it can really be built up in the soil. Beans, as a legume, actually take nitrogen out of the air and fix it into the soil. So, your beans can provide some nitrogen for your corn and reduce the amount of composting and other forms of natural fertilizer that you have to use. Uh, beans also attract beneficial predators. There's all kinds of little uh, little bugs that like to eat things that actually feed on corn. And beans are good for attracting them. And then the other thing is that if you use a bean variety that's a, a pole bean, and you plant it, say three or four weeks is a good time to plant your beans in your cornfield after your corn's gotten off to a good start, your bean will climb up the corn and use it for support. So you won't have to trellis your beans. And you'll get double 
production out of that lot. You wait a couple weeks later and plant some some forms of squash that do good, good ground cover. They'll hold moisture in and they'll do really fine in there and they'll get some benefit uh, from the, uh, the the corns uh, or the beans nitrogen effect as well. And some of the beneficial insects that are attracted by the beans that protect the corn will also protect your squash from things like squash beetles. So that's called a, a three sisters garden uh, in the form that the Indians planted it. But instead of planting these big circles like the Indians did, you could actually plant multiple types of beans. You know, if you had, let's say, six or seven rows of corn, not really a huge uh, raised bed of corn, you might plant on two of them one kind of bean, the next to another kind of bean on the third one. You can even plant a type of pea uh, that's a trellising pea. Uh, so you can create a very mixed environment in there, which will bring lots of different beneficial insects in, and all of these things will protect each other. Now, the big rule there is the next crop you plant in there needs to not be corn and not be beans. Uh, corn, again, very nitrogen-robbing, and beans have certain pests that will accumulate in the soil. So the next time that the ground warms and pests come out of the soil that are designed to eat beans, you want them to find something like carrots and, and, and celery and onions that they don't know what to do with. Uh, and then you can go back to beans and corn in your next rotation. Another part of uh, organic gardening is crop rotation. So these are just some of the things that really go together well. Another one is lettuce with tall flowers. Now lettuce, especially as you get later in the year, the sun starts to scorch it, it bolts quicker, and by bolting, when, when I say lettuce or spinach or other leaf crops bolt, that means they start producing flowers and get ready to go to seed. When they do that, some of them actually become a little bit toxic, but regardless of that, they get really stringy and tough and bitter. So you want to keep your leaf crops from bolting as long as possible. Now, if you're going to save seeds from them, let them go ahead and bolt and harvest the seeds. Otherwise, it's a good time to turn them into compost or turn them into the soil. Uh, that's So that's what to do there. But to protect them from the heat, uh, you plant tall flowers like flowering tobacco is a great one and uh, spider flower. Those types of flowers will give shade to your lettuce and they'll also, again, attract beneficial insects that will protect your lettuce. Uh, here's another one, radishes and spinach. I suggest you put some radishes in with your spinach. Even if you don't really like radishes that much, you can always just uh, feed them any livestock that you have or you can just turn them into compost because there are little things called leaf miners and these things love to eat spinach leaves. And of course, the leaf of your spinach is the only thing that you want to eat yourself. Well, the only thing they seem to like more than spinach is radish leaf. Well, even if you want to eat your radishes, they can go to town and eat the heck out of your radish leaves. You want the root. The radishes will seldom be inhibited by leaf miners chewing on their leaves. And you, they grow very quickly, so you can do some succession planting and keep some of them available at all times to protect your spinach. So that's another uh, opportunity that you have to put plants together. Here's another one. This is uh, really kind of a tried and true one, and it's something that brings up, you know, where do you get your vitamin C from if we can't buy oranges from Tom Thumb? Roses and either garlic, onions, or chives. Uh, garlic, onions, and ch chives, either onion chives or garlic chives, are quite repellent to a variety of insects, and they can be planted with just about everything but peas and beans. I'll give you some don't mix rules here at the end. Uh, but 
But one place they go really good is with roses. Now, think about roses is they're pretty, they're beautiful, they'll appeal to the females in the family. Uh, I like roses, too. I think they're beautiful. Uh, but they do produce something that's quite edible in the form of rose hips. And rose hips have a tremendous amount of vitamin C, far more than an orange. So they're a good source of vitamin C. They have a lot of uses. So roses can actually be a nice border plant that will protect your garden from larger predators or larger things like, like rabbits and deer that may be repelled a little bit by the thorns. Uh, and it may only work so well, but at least it's there. And at the same time, you're producing these hips that can be used for various sources uh, or various things, specifically for a source of vitamin C. They also store well, and they actually taste pretty daggone good if you grow the right kinds of roses. So do some research and find out what roses will grow well in your area and produce the best hips for whatever use you want for them. Another good one, tomatoes and cabbage. Uh, Tomatoes repel certain moths that really like to lay those little caterpillars on your cabbage. So that's another good uh, combination. Another one is, uh, this is kind of a unique one, and it's one that's often overlooked and really shouldn't be because this is going to be another companion that can go with a lot of different uh, vegetables, uh, but is really suited for cucumbers and squashes, but is is an exceptional plant to plant, and it's actually going to produce something edible for you as well. So you combine your squash and your cucumbers with something called nasturtiums. And uh, I've heard these pronounced a bunch of different ways. I've been told that nasturtium is the right way to pronounce it. I've heard it pronounced nasturtiums. Uh, but these are a, a, uh, a trailing uh, vine-like flower uh, that's part of the watercress family. And you can actually eat the foliage and the flowers of nasturtiums or nasturtiums and they are kind of a peppery they have a kind of a peppery spicy taste. And they're wonderful full dropped into salads, and they make salads look really cool to have nasturtiums included with So they're one of the great edible flowers. And maybe someday I'll do a show just on flowers that are edible, because you'd be surprised how many of them that are actually out there. Now, what's so great about these things? Nasturtiums attract predator insects like crazy. Wasps, assassin bugs, things like that. And they uh, repel cucumber and squash beetles. So uh, I had a friend of mine, Hal Dot here, that had real trouble with his squash this summer because the squash beetles just tore them up. Well, you plant some nasturtiums in there and uh, it'll do a lot to attract the assassin bugs that come in there and kill those things. And it'll also do a lot to repel uh, those insects in the first place. And you'll add another edible part of your garden and put some prettiness and beauty into it as well. Uh, So that's like, how do you lose with that? And nasturtiums go particularly well again with those crops, but they can go with a variety of other crops. Um, Peppers can also have planted among them pigweed. Uh, Pigweed is highly preferred by leaf miners. Now, if you don't have any problems with leaf miners eating your peppers, I wouldn't put pigweed into your garden. Uh, But if you do, it's something you can try. But the real important thing to do is watch your pigweed, and when it gets ready to go to seed, cut it down. Do not let it go to seed. Do not let it flower, uh, because it will start to re-sow itself, and you'll end up with your garden overtaken by the stuff. Uh, But that is a good way to get leaf miners off your peppers. So there's another one. 
you know, so there's quite a few there that, that, that seem to work out really well. And I'll post a link in the podcast or several links to some resources, some other companion planning opportunities. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe you'll start to, to look at ways you can incorporate those into your garden. And I'd, I'd like to kind of talk real briefly before I go into some ones that you're not supposed to put together and some things that can be used as natural insecticides and give you my four herbs that belong in every garden. I want to talk real briefly about how companion planting is not only organic, but it makes more sense. And what I mean by that is, if you've ever gone out and done wild foraging, and some of the big things that people like to pick in the wild are blackberries, blueberries, and wild strawberries. And odds are, if you've done any foraging, you've picked one of those. Have you ever been to a place where when you go out, it's like a wide open field, and it's covered in blueberries, blackberries, or strawberries, with nothing else growing among them? And the answer to that is obviously no. You go out in the wild, you have this intermingling of plants. You know, you'll never see 40 acres in the wild of perfectly manicured blueberry bushes. Why? It's not the natural habitat of a blueberry. There's all these different, like, mosses that usually, when you find good blueberries, you'll find these mosses that are growing underneath them. And they're holding moisture in the soil, and those blueberries will be fatter than other blueberries. It's natural companionship in the wild. When you start to put these plants together, even though they may not naturally grow together in their native forms, you're still recreating that kind of a system. You're creating a system that's not only beneficial from the way it interacts with the soil and the way the plants interact with each other, you're creating habitat for these predator insects. And these predator insects, beneficial wasps, and things like that are one of the most important things missing from most gardens. And the day that you spray an insecticide on your garden is the day that you kill all of those. And when you kill all of them, eventually the effects of the insecticide wear off, the beneficial insects have gone off and found another place to live, and the insects that are pests will come back, and they will be the ones with resistance to the pesticide that you've used. So it, it, it's just another in, uh, way to look at how organic gardening is not just about what you don't do. It's about the things that you do and the way that you put them together that are more natural and more holistic. So let's look at some don'ts. All right, uh, for companion planting, bees and beans and peas absolutely do not belong with onion, beet, sunflower, chives, garlic. That's a hard and fast rule. Do not plant garlic and uh, onions with your beans. They seem to have a very detrimental effect on each other. It's not about one attracting something that's damaging to the other. It just doesn't work well. So don't put your onions and your beans together close proximity. Another one is corn and tomatoes. They just don't go well together. Now there's a lot of others that are like iffy. I mean, even, you know, I've said put cabbage and dill together. I've seen some charts say don't put cabbage and dill together. I've got it. It works good. So you can do some trial and error, but you know, kind of limit that to one area and see how it works out for you. But those two rules will go a long way to helping you, you know, prevent grief. Uh, I've seen people plant onions next to their peas, and neither one of them do really well, and try to figure out because the soil seems good, everything seems right. Uh, so that's one that, that really bites a lot of people kind of in the rear. Now let's talk about insecticide use of plants and some different plants that you can plant in your gardens that will form natural insecticides or natural repellents or be very attractive to the beneficial insects. Uh, again, onions. And onions go everything with bees and peas, but you can pretty much plant uh, onions among anything else. And onions and garlic planted among your cabbages, among uh, your tomatoes and things like that will do a lot to 
repel pests. Uh, there's a lot of pest insects that just really do not like onions and garlic. Planting them near your carrots, a lot of pests uh, that eat carrots aren't so much repelled by onions, they're confused by them. They're not sure what to eat. So there, there's one. Uh, French marigolds. Uh, French marigolds kill bad nematodes. And there's two kinds of nematodes in your soil. There's a, there's a good kind uh, that, that prey on uh, insects and, uh, and, and small microorganisms that you don't want in your soil. But there's also nematodes that actually crawl into the root system of your plant and feed on it. Uh, marigolds are like a death sentence for those. So planting some French marigolds in and around some of your other plants is a great way to uh, to repel a lot of above-ground and below-ground pests. Um, another one is Mexican marigolds. Uh, do not plant Mexican marigolds near beans or cabbage, though. Uh, they are very bad for them, but they are uh, they are everything a French marigold is in more, and uh, so they're one of the most uh, repellent uh, plants that you can plant to keep away bad uh, insects that you do not want in your crops. Uh, I don't have problems with Japanese beetles down here in Texas. I've never even seen a Japanese beetle in Texas. Up in uh, Pennsylvania, my grandmother's rose hedges were constantly under attack from Japanese beetles. And I would go out there and actually pick them off the plants for her, and uh, we did what we could to attract little Jenny Wrens and uh, different birds that would actually eat them. Uh, And we kind of fought a continuous battle against the Japanese beetle. If only I would have known. If you plant four o'clocks, which are a type of flower, and you do have to keep you know animals that would eat them away from them because they are toxic. But if you plant four o'clocks, Japanese beetles will be attracted to them like a magnet. They'll start to chew on them, and they will almost immediately die. And they're, I guess, you know, insect brains aren't much, and they're kind of too stupid to understand to stop eating them, even though their buddies are dropping around them. So they'll never uh, kill your four o'clocks off because they they die too fast from the results. It's a natural pesticide. Uh, chrysanthemums kill root nematodes as well. So chrysanthemums planted intermixed in some of your uh, garden areas will do a lot to keep the bad nematodes out. That, of course, gives more habitat space to the good nematodes. Uh, and then the flowers, of course, again, beneficial insects will be attracted to both the, f- the flowers and the foliage. But also quite tall, so they're another way to provide some shade for some of those crops that can do with some partial shade in the summertime. Uh, another one is mint. Mint repels moths, aphids, and uh, a lot of other uh, things like flea beetles, and uh, it tracks a lot of the good guys. Now, the thing about mint, mint's invasive, man. Think of mint like an ivy. You do not plant mint into the dirt of your garden. If you do, you will end up with a garden full of mint in time. It is almost impossible uh, to control mint once it begins to spread into your garden. So the way that you handle that is you get yourself a nice pot or two of mint, and you place them into different parts of your garden uh, where maybe the pot is well shaded so you don't have to water it as often. And uh, it'll go a long way toward repelling uh, the bad guys and bringing in the good guys. Now it's time for me to kind of wrap up by giving you my four herbs that I think belong in just about any and every garden. All four of these herbs have some level of a repellent effect on negative in the insects you don't want, negative negative insects. Um, the ones they don't repel, they tend to attract creatures that like to feed on the ones you don't want. 
uh, and they are good for culinary use. They're, 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 they're four herbs that you can cook with almost every day if you choose to. Uh, they're all attractive, and they all smell wonderful, especially when you give your garden a good watering. The smell that comes out of these four herbs is amazing. Uh, one I'm going to give you a little bit of caution with, and that's the first one I'll mention, which is rosemary. Rosemary is basically a little pine bush type of evergreen, conifer. And it's great, but you just might have to realize that at some point you're going to have to cut a rosemary bush down. Now, one way to deal with this, maybe, is to plant a rosemary bush outside of your raised bed, kind of on the edge of your garden space, and it'll do it'll do its its work there. If you plant it in your bed, you're going to have to get rid of it often. I have one growing on the side of my house now that is turned into a huge shrub, and it's got room there, and it's in with other herbs, and I don't mind it being big, so I've pretty much let it grow. But you can trim them and, and keep them down to size to a degree. But the trunk on that one, and it's only about two years old, I can't get my hand around the trunk at the bottom of this plant anymore. So you have to use some caution with where you place it. But rosemary is exceptional uh, at bringing in beneficial insects and providing a good culinary item. Uh, the best way to use rosemary isn't really fresh in most instances. It's one of the herbs that's really great when you let the needles dry out. Cut some sprigs, hang them up, let them dry till they're brittle and the needles just brush off easily, put them in a you know a, a glass jar with a lid, uh, and one of the wonderful ways to enjoy rosemary is to, is to bake fresh bread, uh, sprinkle a little olive oil on top of it, and then sprinkle some crumbled up rosemary, or bake rosemary directly into the bread. Just go easy with it. So rosemary, excellent all around uh, at attracting beneficial insects, repelling negative ones, just use caution with its size. Oregano. Oregano is also an herb that brings in a lot of beneficial insects. In many places, you can keep it growing through the winter. I can here. I've got oregano that's going into its third season now in the ground. A trim it is needed. Uh, it can get a little bit invasive. You may need to keep it under control, but it's usually not that hard to do. And you can simply chop part of the plant out, and you can you can usually get pieces of oregano out of the ground without killing it and moving it and transplant it to other locations or give it away. Uh, and it's all always something that goes well with just about any dish you can think of. Another one's basil. Basil's even better than rosemary as far as I'm concerned. A lot of times your basil will come back on its own uh, for one year, and by the third year you'll have to kind of replace it. It usually will not overwinter. I don't know of many people that are overwintering their basil, uh, but you can usually get two years out of it. You'll get at least some uh, volunteers, they call them, uh, when something just pops up that you didn't uh, expect. And uh, I didn't plant basil this year in my herb garden, uh, uh, just didn't really need any there and uh, didn't plant any in my beds but I actually have right now a couple plants of purple basil that have just come up uh, since it's gotten cooler that are from uh, planting two years ago so it can it can happen that way and you're not ever really sure when they're going to come up uh, but basil is, is great again for repelling certain insects bringing others in basil is wonderful planted with your tomatoes it'll actually lend some flavor to the tomatoes and uh, basil and tomato, of course, you know, the staples of, to go of good uh, homemade tomato sauce anyway. So they go well together. And uh, basil, fresh chopped basil, just a little bit sprinkled into a salad, it's not so powerful. Like if you put fresh oregano in a salad, it's usually a little bit too much, a little bit too, uh, too, too bitter or spicy or however you want to call it. But basil is kind of a nice, gentle herb that will go good in a salad. As is the last one, which is parsley. Parsley is highly overlooked. People put it on a plate as a garnish, but some good uh, flat parsley is wonderful in the garden, good for attracting uh, uh, beneficial insects, 
repelling negative insects, and excellent when you chop up a little bit of added to a salad or things like that. So those are kind of my four all-around culinary herbs that belong in your garden. And if you start thinking about a garden now, the type of garden we've described, you know, I won't tell you what to grow. You, you might like to grow squash, tomatoes, potatoes, uh, celery, carrots, peppers, whatever. But whatever you're growing, now you start to mix in some things like some nasturtiums, some chrysanthemums, some tobacco flour, some, some herbs. And uh, maybe instead of having just these huge beds with all one type, you do some mixed plantings and, and some rotations, and you your garden starts to look a lot better. It starts to smell a lot better. Something you're more excited to go out to every day and see how it's changed. You put more time and effort into because it's a more rewarding experience. You get more production out of it. And as you know, a crop of lettuce comes to fruition, maybe you pull it out. It's too warm now. And in that bare spot, you add a little bit of compost and go in and plant some kale. And you start seeing how you can intermix these plants. You just follow the basic rules of what not to put together. Try to put the things together that do best together. And you start to create this holistic garden that protects itself from predators, nourishes itself with nutrients, conserves its own water, and is better all around, not just for the environment and not just for the food that you put in your mouth, but after two or three seasons of hard work, will give you some of the easiest carefree gardening that you could ever want to do. Uh, I've seen organic gardens after three, four, five years of hard work where you don't even need a shovel anymore. People can do everything with their hands. The soil is so light, aerated, and fluffy. Uh, and you, you know, when you do all these other things, the natural byproduct is you start attracting, because uh, you keep nice, damp soil with a lot of organic matter in it, worms come. Worms are the king of the garden. You want as many worms as your garden as possible. Uh, so all together, you start to build the system. All right. So it's just like we take a home. We turn our house into a homestead. We turn our garden into something that starts to resemble permaculture. You know, permaculture to me is more like the trees, the bushes, the shrubs, the things that will come back with very little care at all and take care of themselves. Your garden's always going to require replanting, adding compost, and doing these other things. But it can become a lot more carefree and a lot more of a producer. So hopefully today's been uh, eye-opening and informing and you've learned some things and you have maybe a new view as you start to do your planning for your garden. Uh, last little note, kind of a Christmas present, I guess, that I, that I have for everybody. I went through this weekend and I found 22 or 23 great seed catalogs. And uh, December, January, February, great time to be going through your seed catalogs, doing your planning for your new gardens, starting your little plants to be put out in the spring and doing all that good stuff. And I posted a post in the forum at the survivalpodcast.com slash forum, and I'll put a link to it here, where you can go and order all these different catalogs and uh, spend some time this winter doing some real planning. And now that you have some different companion planning rules, continue to learn more, learn well, you know, about what grows well in your area, and start to draw out and sketch out what your garden is going to look like this spring, this summer, and even this fall. If you start to do that, you'll get creative and you'll get more use out of those seed catalogs. So, uh, Happy reading with the seed catalogs. Happy planting and planting with your gardening. And uh, again, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. You can scream. And you can holler. It really doesn't matter. Because it all gets spent.